This is EMS Improv Podcast, where we engage, where we are mindful, and we share or tell our stories. I am Eric Chase, and we are powered by GEMS. Today, I'm very excited. We are with Susan Bailey. Susan is the director at the Louisiana Bureau of Emergency Medical Services. Um, Susan has been the director for just over four and a half years at this point, and she has been or was the assistant training director and paramedic program director at the East Baton Rouge Parish for EMS. And she had done that for over 17 years. She is currently on the National EMS Management Association. And ladies and gentlemen, applause, please. The national uh, president-elect for the NAEMT. And she will take that office in, I believe, January of 2023. She has a heart of service. She has a mission for people. She has an associates of science degree. She has a bachelor of arts in management. And ladies and gentlemen, um, she has a master's in crisis emergency disaster management. She's also had a certificate in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Um, She holds that certificate as well. And I know her, not personally, but through our professional organizations and LinkedIn. And Susan has been rather intentional about leadership, the passion and motivation of leadership, and how I think that expands to what she's doing within the state of uh, Louisiana. And here in just about 30 seconds, I'm gonna let her get into her passion, missions, and responsibilities. But just out of interest, uh, in 2017, the the state fire marshal appointed Susan after three interviews, three lengthy interviews in the application process to be the uh, director of the state uh, for the state of Louisiana in the EMS division. So Susan, one of the things that uh, you posted recently, and and I'm always fond and it brings a smile to my heart when I see you posting leadership things or sharing them is no one in this world is pure and perfect. If you avoid people for their little mistakes, you will always be alone. So judge less and love more. And I wanna say, I love that. And I appreciate you in the, in the scope of humanity. I love you and I love who you are and what you represent. And without further ado, Susan Bailey, everyone. And thank you for being on the EMS Improv Podcast. Hi, and thank you for inviting me. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate the invitation. And so I just want to, um, I don't want to take credit for what you see me post. I follow a lot of uh, leadership um, agencies on LinkedIn. And a lot of those come from Leadership First or the European Leadership Group. And so I just repost them. But, you know, I like to always post um, positive messages. And I think, unfortunately, in social media, we see way too much negativity And so I just try to make sure that it is either um, a positive thing about leadership or something positive that's going on in my personal life with my family. And I share that as well. I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think when we can collaborate and expand upon where we see things, how we've learned things and what our interests are. So thank you for sharing about, um, whom you like to refer. You said family. And before we get, I guess, into, the mission and responsibilities and the oversight that you have within the state of Louisiana EMS division as director. I believe that it is important to have a work-life balance. You are the director and several times a year, particularly when you talk about disaster management, where you guys are on high alert and and dealing with uh, a plethora of uh, hurricanes and or other adverse weather and, and activities that occur within your state and the region. How do you maintain a work-life balance holding your position within the state of Louisiana, if you're comfortable talking about that? 
Sure, absolutely. So um, my husband and I will um, be married 14 years um, in April, April the 5th. And um, so I like to jokingly say I was a paramedic when when I met him and he married me anyway. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, he he's just a great support system. And of course, when we got married, we didn't have any children and I couldn't have children. And so um, he during disasters, he's always just uh, kept kept the house going. We have uh, several cats and dogs and, you know, he took care of those and. Then about two or three years ago, we um, we adopted a, a at that time a 24 year old young lady who had um, who had a baby, and um, they were supposed to just come to the house to stay for a couple months um, until she could get some some of her life issues straightened out, and that turned into where we are now, three years later, and. Um, she calls us mom and daddy and the baby calls us Mimi and Papa. And I think that's the best title in the world is Mimi. But, um, but uh, my husband's just a great support system and the, and the, my daughter and my granddaughter, you know, they look up to me no matter what I do and even when it's wrong. And so I don't want to do wrong and let them think it's okay. So I just want to do the right thing so that I can set that example for them. Um, <laughs> that makes my heart so happy. And for the listeners and for you, Susan, yes, uh, since we're not on video, uh, that brought me to tears um, oh. for a couple of reasons. And, and one, because I hear love and, and I feel love. Um, I am a poppy and my, and my wife is a ma. Um, our kids, uh, we, we believe they could have um, biological children, um, but I am the poppy of two uh, adopted grandchildren that are six and six and a half. And it's been the best thing for me in my life to, to be a better human. Um, I wasn't particularly the best father, or oh, I've always been a father, but I think there's a distinction between dad and father relationally. And uh, it's interesting that we're delving into this. Um, but you had mentioned that the importance of you know, your husband married you as a paramedic. My wife did the same thing about uh, eight years ago. And um, they don't know what they don't know. And, and, and it, there's been some interesting conversations over the couple of years on how to manage that relationally. And uh, when adverse events happen or when, when the phone call goes off and it is a, an urgent disaster, I may be gone for days that we weren't planning on me being gone. So I know the same is for you. Um, wow. With that, all the feelings and emotions right out the very beginning. <clears throat> thank you for sharing that. And, and, uh, I, I am appreciative of, and when, when leaders in, in the position and the magnitude that they have is, um, you take your position seriously, but maybe you don't take yourself so seriously, but at the same time, uh, doing good and being seen as doing the right thing is important as a leader I can imagine. So can you expand upon that? And we'll pivot over to the professional side and, and, and not the personal side at this point. Sure. So when uh, when I became director of the Bureau of EMS in Louisiana, I um, focused on and, and what I asked the staff to focus on was um, customer service. And so one of the big um, one of the big issues was that um, 
people felt like their emails weren't getting returned, the phone calls weren't getting returned, or they just weren't being heard when they called the Bureau for help. And so we focused on it when I started, we continued to focus on that um, today is customer service and how we can um, help our customers, no matter what that is. And um, matter of fact, we started this month and we continue through April, we are gonna be traveling throughout the state to do town hall meetings so that people can understand what we're doing at the Bureau. And we can also hear from our stakeholders on what we can do better or what are we doing that they like and they want us to continue to do or what are we doing that they don't like that they think we should stop so that we can continue to, to be better and we can continue to um, serve our customers to the, to the best of our ability. So that's been a big focus from day one and it continues through today. And with that, um, can you define, um, because I won't get into where, but I, I worked for a, an EMS division for a while. Um, and I know people around the country that have been in, in positions in EMS divisions or trauma divisions within their state. Who do you consider the customers and how is that broken down from um, the standpoint of them not feeling or being heard? Um, so first of all, who are your customers? And then recognizing that, that the issue is there of them not being heard and then you taking that missional focus on saying, we're going to meet with them. We're going to be more attentive to their concerns and their needs. Um, if you can go from there, that'd be awesome. So the Bureau has um, six statutorily defined functions. And one is education. So um, the customers to our education section are the instructors and the students. So the students may call and, and say, I, you know, I, I can't get into my account. I can't register for a class. The instructors may have uh, questions about um, how to add a student to a roster, how uh, they may have an equipment issue. And so um, when I came, there was not an education manager. And so um I hired, I hired a, a man that um, had a wealth of knowledge in education, but was not an EMS. And some people weren't real happy about that. And I said, well, the knowledge that he has in education far surpasses what I had, even as a program director. And I can teach him what he needs to know about EMS. So, um, so he's done, he's done an amazing job at improving um, the education programs within the state. We have a lot of high school education programs in our state at the EMT and the EMR level. And he's really been able to um, improve those. <clears throat> and then we have um, our certification commission, which is facilitated by our deputy director, and they deal with disciplinary issues and they deal uh, with scope of practice issues. And so she um, works with them and she makes sure that we um, meet in person um, every other month to discuss scope of practice issues as well as um, disciplinary issues. And our third function is licensing. So anybody who, who is wanting to get 
a license to practice in EMS in Louisiana would be our customer. And we have an EMT uh, who is very compassionate, very helpful, and very patient. Because um, I would venture to say that she takes approximately 60 phone calls a day from our customers about obtaining a license. Our fourth, our fourth um, function is to host psychomotor exams. We're a full na national registry state. So that means that um, in order to get a Louisiana license, you have to have a, a national registry certification. And so we have an exam coordinator who conducts our exams. So anybody who wants to get a license and wants to become an EMT um, is our customer because they would need to schedule an exam. And then we have our ambulance standards coordinator who um, inspects and renews the EMS provider licenses for our, the ambulance services. And so every year they have a license renewal process that she conducts that um, where all of the paperwork, all of the protocols, a certain percentage of the units are inspected to make sure that the supplies and equipment that is called to be used for in the protocol is actually in the ambulance. And then finally, we have our 911 telephone telecommunicator um, coordinator. And um, recently we had a, a law passed that stated that all telecommunicators in Louisiana must complete a telephone CPR course in which they learn how to give uh, CPR instructions over the phone. And so she monitors that to make sure that all telecommunicators um, do take the course, whether it's through an EMD class or whether it's through a course that we have posted on our website so that they can get that complete. So any telecommunicators that um, are working in Louisiana are our customers. So we have a range of customers from EMS providers and stakeholders to people who are or people who wanna be EMS practitioners. So um, we have a huge uh, customer pool that um, we try to make happy and that we try to serve to the best of our ability. My mind is blown. That is daunting in a lot of states you know, there, there is some oversight, but then it's the agencies themselves are incumbent upon having the 911, you know, coordinator or the ambulance standard coordinator, uh, which is then licensed or, or you know, annually or semi-annually or biannually licensed or, you know, spot checked. Uh, the psychomotor exams is, is completely with the, within the purview of the education facilities in, in my state currently. Um, licensing specifically is still done within the state that I currently live. Um, the certification division, that makes sense, scope of practice and discipline issues, and then education, um, that in and of itself, and you having been an educator for 17 plus years, and you still are an educator, um, just like you said, when you brought in the education manager, um, their wealth and breadth of knowledge, experience, and education far exceeded yours in education, and yet you can teach and facilitate and share your knowledge of EMS to this individual, um, so that's daunting. It looks, looks amazing. So as a leader, as you're serving your customers down to the, um, the newest entrant to the state of EMS division, however that looks, you have a lot of moving pieces. Um, how do you find, and were people already in these positions or 
were you given kind of carte blanche uh, opportunity to monitor, evaluate, train, retrain uh, people to come to the level and the standards that you have for the organization? Or were they already serving at a high degree? Kind of what was the combination of what your abilities to bring in the people that you know uh, you needed to have in positions? Um, so kind of what does that look like for you when you started four years ago or a little over four years ago? So we're, there were um, three full-time employees and two part-time employees here when I came here. And um, one was the deputy director and one was the exam coordinator. And um, then we had uh, our administrative assistant and then we had a part-time administrative assistant. And so, um, you know, at, at the end of the day and for our office to run smoothly, the administrative assistants are the most important employees mm -hmm. because they keep every, everything working um, here in the office. But um, the first person that, uh, that was needed, of course, was an education manager. And so um, we found this individual, his, his name's John. And, um, we, he came in and, and hit, the, hit the ground running and um, really hasn't looked back. He, he does a really great job. And in the process of, um, we hired, after that we hired a, um, a credentialing coordinator or licensing coordinator for our um, practitioners. and. She um, she was doing a great job. We started with a new information management system. And so um, it was kind of good that she was new because she didn't know the old system really. So she she could learn the new one and, and refine that and, and make that process her own. And um, then we inherited the ambulance standards. It wasn't within the Bureau of EMS at the time. We inherited that. And so... Um, we started that process and our exam, the current exam coordinator left. And so we, we hired an, another one who um, actually retired from his uh, previous job after 30 years. So he came to the exam coordinator position with um, 30 years um, of experience as a paramedic and a supervisor, and then came to work uh, with us as the exam coordinator and then um, our deputy director at the time, he retired. So the individual who was our credentialing coordinator became the deputy director. And so, so um, and her name's Stacy, and she is, um, you know, I would just say everyone here is some very hardworking people, but uh, she's refined the commission process. And um, then Catherine, we hired her as the credentialing coordinator. And, you know, she's, she's very ambitious. And um, so not only does she take those 40 to 60 phone calls a day, she decided that she wanted to further her education and she's currently in an advanced EMT class. So um, just, so being an EMT wasn't um, where she wanted to stay. So now she's um, in an advanced EMT class. And then our 911 coordinator, um, she is, uh, she's also retired from her first job and this is her second job. And she was a former uh, telecommunicator at a very um, large busy system. So she brought a whole lot of expertise to the position and our ambulance standards coordinator has over 10 years experience as a paramedic at a very busy service. And so um, she brought that experience. So I was able to um, build a staff that, um, again, I think is uh, some of the hardest working people I know. Um, 
I think uh, one has admitted that they came to work here thinking that um, they would be able to take it easy and not maybe not work as hard. And they have admittedly said they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a different kind of hard work. Um, but, you know, and then what I didn't what I didn't say earlier is, you know, and I, I feel like I have the most important customers and that's the staff. Right. Because. Mm-hmm. I have to make sure that they're happy and that they, they feel heard and that they know their value so that they continue to do their jobs with pride. And so um, those are, those are my customers as the staff to make sure that, that um, I give them the tools they need to do the jobs that they need to do. Again, so many moving pieces. And, and I love that you, you circled back to, the staff. Um, I do want to talk about uh, a very salient point that uh, across the country and, and in business and industry and professional organizations today is a huge hot button issue uh, where we're uh, having issues uh, with diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. But I want to circle back to that in a minute or two um, as we get to that. When you were talking again, I want to go back to the education position. There seems to be, and again, divisiveness oftentimes when um, within EMS, if you look across social media just alone or, or when you were working as a, as a paramedic and I'm still a field level practitioner myself, hearing the dissonant or the discord between individuals within an organization and why a person got a position versus another person getting a position and they don't have an EMS background but yet that shouldn't matter if they're the best person for the position. And at the same time, so many of us within EMS mobile medicine, you know, are self-limiting and, and, you know, you'll hear things like pay or benefits and reimbursement are the issues and the reasons why. And to me, it comes down to culture. And it sounds like to me, you're creating a culture because you're serving your staff and you're hoping and instilling in them the ability and the opportunities to serve their your customers, which are all of these other entities, you know, which you're statutorily obligated to do, but you don't look at it as just an obligation. Um, it sounds to me like you're making that a missional focus or a missional purpose, and that comes with heart. So where did where did you get instilled within you the heart and the passion, the motivation, the desire to be a leader, to spend years and money on an associate's of science degree, a bachelor of arts in management, and then a master's degree that have helped lift you and elevate you to this opportunity. But at the same time, all of those things without um, good relational interactions with people and being a leader, even in a management role. And I think we can both uh, hopefully agree that management leadership can potentially mean two different things from a, an oversight and, and a leading people standpoint. But you sound like a director manager that's also a leader from everything that you've shared. So with that being said, kind of sliding back down, what drove you, what continues to drive you? And was there a person, an individual, a quote, an experience that you had that drives your fire um, still to do these things in service of others? Well, there's there's several factors. And, um, you know, my, my daddy always said I was a bossy kid anyway. And, you know. (laughs) 
So, uh, you know, I think I was born with some of it. Um, uh, uh, hopefully I've refined that, you know, since being very young and being a bossy kid, but um, I learned a lot of, you know, I just learned a lot of things along the way. And, um, you know, one thing I remember, I, I took the, uh, the, the National Association of EMS Educators, I took their instructor class. And I remember um, somebody said, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I could just remember thinking of people who would tell me how smart they were and how much they knew, but they didn't really care if I finished my education, if I finished that shift, if I finished that clinical. And so, you know, I thought to myself, I don't, I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person who, you know, wants to share my knowledge, not necessarily the person who knows everything, but wants to share what I know and then learn what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's what I always encourage students to, um, you know, be proud of what you know, be confident in what you know, and be willing to learn what, what you don't, what you don't know. And, um, you know, then one of the former Bureau of EMS directors, uh, her name was Nancy Bourgeois, you know, she was a mentor and, um, I learned a lot of things, especially about the navigation of state government from her. And, you know, she's still available, you know, when I have questions about those kind of things, being the bureau director. And then uh, there, there was just, you know, a lot of people along the way who gave me bits and pieces of advice that, you know, I just took to heart. And, um some, you know, some people say, well, when, when you can't do the job on the street, you start teaching. I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to still be the person who could do the job on the, on the street, but chose to teach, not was forced to teach. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just think things like that, you know, helping students, uh, I would tell my students, look, I've held the trash can while students, you know, puked in it because they were so nervous. Their stomachs were upset. Mm -hmm. It's okay. I'll hold the trash can, but you know, you have to get over your nerves. You have to just taking the, the national registry test is, is the easy part. The hard part's going out there and taking care of people. And so, um, you know, I just think just from the years of doing this, watching other people, trying to emulate certain people and what they did um, and, and taking every leadership opportunity that I could find to, to do better. And one of the things that um, one of the classes that NAEMT has is um, it's called the people class. It's the principles of ethics and personal leadership. And one of the quotes is in there because um, you know, a lot of people say, well, what's it matter? What does it matter what I do? when when leadership is not going to change well every day we wake up with control of one person that can make a difference and that's ourselves mm -hmm. and so if we might we might not be able to control what our boss is going to do or did or what you know the boss's boss is doing we can't control the leadership but if we change what we do today the people who follow us will see what we're doing and we can change it from the bottom up. 
And so that's the way I look at it. And then, you know, and, and certainly, you know, I guess the last thing I'll mention and definitely not the least is um, the church where I go. We, um, so I'm on the greeter co committee and a lot of people don't understand that that was kind of hard for me to, you know, welcome people to church. And I just didn't feel like I was worthy. But one of the things that, you know, I was told one of the first times I went to church there was um, just come on in. Um, we don't have rules here. Um, the only rule is that you, you do what you feel God is leading you to do. And so um, we, we do all kinds of missions at our church, you know, a lot of community outreach. Uh, we don't want anyone to come visit our church that is not welcomed by somebody in our church. And, and I would venture to say that if that happens, it's very, very rare. But um, I just thought, you know, I just see our church as um, helping people. And there's, there's no qualification to get that help. If somebody comes and says, we need help, we don't ask to make sure they're qualified to give the help. We just give it to them. And so, um, you know, I just feel like as long as I have the ability to help people, whether it's here at work, whether it's at home with my family, or whether it's in the community at church, I should do that. And so that's what I try to do. So I've heard, I heard a lot of things there, um, a heart of service, uh, a passion for people, um, a personal accountability, um, kind of an imposter syndrome uh, mindset at times where I don't feel worthy, particularly when we cross the road and, and talk about faith-based as well, where, you know, we all fall short of that glory. Um, so at times as a leader, as a manager, or, or in this case, um, for those that have uh, faith-based um, feelings and practices, uh, they, they can be overarching and overlapping and then equally uplifting from one to the other if we are in relationship with people. And I think that it's very important that you, uh, in your position, and I thank you for your vulnerability and your leadership, to share from the top down and bottom up kind of how you become the woman, the leader that you have become. And I think each one of those experiential, uh, good, bad, or otherwise uh, circumstances that you've dealt with have led you to become the woman, uh, the leader, the director, the wife, the mother, the, is it Mama? Or Mimi. Mimi, sorry. Mimi that you, that you find joy in. And, you know, we talk about cumulative trauma through life and, you know, um, I'm all about trying to build cumulative joy, even in the face of adversity. And that sounds like what you want to instill within your organization, all the way back down to your customers um, and those that are reaching out to the state. I'm interested to find out um, with that, how you hold, uh, without getting into trade secrets, how you hold accountability sessions and how do you normalize accountability sessions with, with your, um, with your workers, with your staff. And, you know, we call them subordinates, uh, call them equals. However you manage is how you manage. And at the same point, when, when a supervisor, a leader, a manager, a director has to have an accountability conversation, um, 
is it foreign to you? Is it something that you, since you try to build relational interactions with people as opposed to just transactional, are you seen in the office? Do people interact with you? Do you just have conversations about, hey, how your grandmother doing? How's your husband? How's your wife, your children? So they see you on a, on a quote unquote human level and not just the director position. So then when you have to bring them in or, they, or you go to them uh, for an accountability conversation, um, they tend to go better, but I'm curious what you kind of do to uh, engage people when you have to hold them to that standard that they might not have met. Sure. So I guess, you know, our office is very small. We, we have um, eight full-time employees and one part-time. So I guess the good news with, with that is that we pretty much know each other um, and, and know each other's spouses and children and pretty much know what's going on with each other um, most of the time. And so we're able to, to say, you know, how, how's your spouse doing? How are your kids? How, you know, how are they doing at school? Those kind of things. So we try to keep that personal connection without, you know, crossing that line into, into information that may not be any of our business, but um I think uh, accountability is a two-way street. Um, and I think we have to also look at, is it a mistake or is it a habit, right? So um, we had an issue not too long ago where a mistake was made in, in the level of someone's license and um, it they caught it. And it was brought to my attention. And I, I said, well, you know, this is the first time, right? And it was the first time. And I said, well, how did it happen? And they explained the process. And I said, well, now that we know that this mistake could happen, let's make, let's prevent this mistake from happening, happening again. And let's move forward. Um, you know, and, and I think people, your staff, um, your students um, should have have the ability to make a mistake. And one mistake is a mistake. That's what it is. We all make mistakes. It's when that mistake is done over and over and over again that it becomes a habit when there's a problem. And so um, stopping that mistake after the first one and doing it in a constructive way versus a punitive way usually prevents the conversations of this is now a habit and now, you know, there's, there's punishment involved. And so um, thankfully we, we just, we don't have that many um that many mistakes, and then we don't have uh, we don't have any of those habits where that that need to be um, that need to have some corrective action to them. And uh, you know, and I learned that at school um, when I was teaching, we would have our, our lab time, and you know, the students would kind of want to stand back if they didn't if they weren't sure about the skill, or they would kind of blow off lab time and say, well, this isn't the real thing. I don't, you know, I want to wait till I'm doing it for real. And I had to explain to them, this is the time where you make the mistakes. This is the time uh, 
that you make the mistakes and you say, I'm not sure how to do it. It's not when you're out there with a real patient that you say, oh, yeah, I don't know how to do that. When that patient's depending on you to know how to do it. So, um, yeah, you know, I always try to encourage them to utilize their lab time. If they don't know it in the classroom is the time to admit they don't know it so that we can fix it before they're actually getting out there in the field. So I've tried to adapt that, you know, the same way here at the, at the Bureau of EMS. If, if you don't know something, now's the time so that, you know, once a mistake is identified, we find steps to avoid it happening again. And so that it doesn't become the, the norm, you know, we don't want that to be the norm. So I give them permission to make a mistake. And then I also give them permission to hold me accountable. So if I'm asking them to do something and, and I don't do it, they have the authority to come to me and say, wait a minute, you know, you told me I had to do X, Y, and Z, but you're not doing it. And that's, you know, we, uh, you need to practice what you preach. So they have that, um, they have that authority to, to make, hold me accountable as well. I love hearing that. And it brings to me so many different levels from work to personal life. And kind of how they again overlap, um, but the authority they have to do that, and and your willingness to one be held accountable. Um, I think all leaders out there, um, the leaders out there, probably are are doing that. For everyone else out there that's hearing this, please take this as an open opportunity to to look inward and to maybe open up a little bit. And, and we're not chastising anybody. We want to create a safe and psychologically safe environment. But just start saying yes to other ideas and start saying yes to, to the ways that people like Susan and the director position with her education and experience um, are doing things. So this is a roadmap for somebody out there that can, you know, plant a flag and say, today I'm starting to do this. I want to be now. I'm no longer unaware. I want to be uh, able to do it. And uh, I have to learn whether or not I'm, I'm willing to. But if we make that decision... Let's plant that flag and go. And you mentioned several great courses um, already with the NAEMT. I happen to be on the education committee with the American Ambulance Association and had served um, as a cultural competency uh, member on the uh, NAEMT for, uh, for a while as well. Um, so I think what you're sharing about you, one is, is a massive amount of strength in it, it. It's emboldened by your education and by your experiences. But there's also a level of vulnerability. And that's one of the things that in the classes that I bring out is being real and honest and, and, and admitting without, um, you know, being detrimental about yourself or so self-deprecating that people don't listen um, to another point. A class that you took that I found uh, very, very important and, and uh, is the diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace uh, course. Um, what did that mean to you? What did what do you believe you've learned from that? And what are some of the things that you've implemented since taking that course, uh, whether it be in your personal and or professional life or a combination of the two, whatever you're comfortable sharing? So that that course was really an eye opener for me. Um, because when I took it, I was like, you know, I like everybody. I don't judge people, but um, I learned there's so many uh, for myself, um, so many, I guess, unconscious bias, 
that I had. And one thing that really, um, that really rang a bell to me that um, was in this class. And I even um, sent an email uh, up, up the ladder was um, a recommendation to um, hide, hide the names of applicants, excuse me, hide the names, hide any um, names of schools that could indicate um, their ethnicity, their um, anything that would make them not, not, uh, or anything that would make them stand out so that you, you're reviewing the applications based on their qualifications alone and then pick your applicants and then see the names and see, um, you know, where they went to school and, and what kind of, um, organizations they may belong to, but review the qualifications first. So, um, you know, having blinded applications, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. I mean, I thought that was uh, just a, a great idea. And then one person, and I don't remember the name, one thing that, you know, that they said, and this is a, this course was a very candid course. It was no sugarcoating. And it was an online course, but there was no sugarcoating. And and they said, um, making sure that you have diversity, equity, and inclusion does not mean lowering your standards. It means expanding your pool. And I was like, that, I mean, that just rang a bell with me because the people who were speaking during these sessions were highly educated, highly successful people. And nowhere did they say, you know, you have to lower your standard. They just said you have to expand the, the pool of people that you're, that you're picking from. And, and that, that, that just rang a huge bell with me was that, you know, I think when certain people, when some of us hear those words, they're saying, Oh, well, we got to change our standards. And that's not at all what that means. It means we just have to include everyone. And, and this went from, um, an attorney was was in this class an attorney with autism and she said she could not tell you how many times she was told she could not become an attorney because she was autistic mm. and so just you know for her just to be excluded because of that for um another person um was was told that they couldn't um, be successful because they had a hearing impairment. And I, and so it just, it just never, I mean, I'm, I'm so thankful that I have the life I have, but I just never realized how um, closed minded 
certain areas and certain um, businesses and certain educational institutions were mm-hmm. based on um, somebody just being different. It, it's mind boggling to me. And uh, I, I love that you mentioned from the onset of the diversity, uh, equity and inclusion conversation, our, um, not our blindness is our, um, Unconscious bias. Uncon- yeah, our unconscious yeah. bias. And um, so my grandchildren, one is brown, brown, and the other one is skin color of black. And, you know, I always said, you know, I, was, I served in the military and every ethnicity, uh, color of skin, race, creed, um, orientation, even though at the time it wasn't, you know, it was, wasn't even, we weren't even at Don't Ask Hotel. It was like, if they found out you're getting booted, if you had a sexual preference other than uh, cisgendered white male or cisgendered female. And, you know, and then I served for the Justice Department and that's massive. It's always been generally on diversity, equity and inclusion, but we didn't talk about it. So obviously there were failures because we weren't making sure that we were keeping it at the forefront of our hiring processes. Who we, who, where are we going to look for applicants for the applicant pool? Are we going to go to the same places? Well, then that our, our results are never going to change. It's kind of the like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting the same results, you know, over and over. So you've taken some key points and, and you've implemented them. And, and I love the blind, uh, the blinded application from that standpoint, because even if we don't want to, um, there are things that resonate from our pasts, from our present in interaction that may have been an adverse interaction. And if we see that, that subconscious lights up, and, and we tend to look over that, that experience or that person or that individual for an opportunity. And I, it's a massive failing, um, but it, it's, it's, an, it's an unfortunate part of the human experience. And at the same time, we need to uh, facilitate, and I, and I love that you're doing that, facilitating it from such a high position um, as the director within the state of uh, Louisiana. I believe truly that you know, the work that we do and the work that I've studied in psychology is that we're engaged and we have, we're technically, and I'm doing air quotes, um, Wi-Fi connected. You know, whether it be positive traits or negative traits, our human interactions are integral uh, in the connections and our engagement to doing well, being successful, to being happy, to feeling joy. Um, at the same time, we tend to cut them off when we're outside of the scope of our work and less like yourself and, and myself and others that do this have a higher kind of calling uh, or a faith-based system, uh, you know, and, and say there's plenty of agnostics and, and atheists that also love t- treating people well. So I'm not trying to call out uh, a religiosity or spirituality as the, as the end-all be-all to, to greatness in how we treat people. I'm really interested, and I appreciate your, your sharing the diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. When you talk about education, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, have you seen within the state uh, in, in your data that organizations and the schools that you had mentioned are reaching out to different um, ethnic groups to, to try to grow the applicant pool? Um, are we meeting, do you find that your, your state education or the education organizations within your state, particularly for EMS, especially of course, are doing that? Are they diligent and respectful and mindful in that process to that where we're seeing in, 
you know, whether it's starting at the high school level, which I that you mentioned, where in 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to see uh, not a homogenous uh, group of professionals, but one that looks like the communities that we respond to. Do you know if there's been any market change, uh, even with your direction, uh, to do that? Yeah, so I know we have um, several education programs that um, are especially in the rural communities, but they've identified the students who, you know, for whatever reason, um, can are not going to go to college. And, you know, that could be they don't want to versus they can't afford to. So they've identified these students and they are offering them um, tuition assistance to um, take a uh, EMT class in the summer so that um, when they finish high school, they could be employed um, by, an e- by an EMS agency uh, straight out of high school. So, you know, they could, they could start work instead of, you know, maybe not going to work and after they get out of high school. So we've, we've been looking at that and we've been also looking at uh, some of these education. We, we facilitate this, but we've also been looking at um, some of the inner city schools in, in some of our areas, looking at them and what um, students are available to uh, take an EMT or an EMR class and seeing if EMS is, is the path that they want to go. And I think doing this in school um, is, is kind of helpful because, um, you know, s- some people just aren't cut out to be an EMS. And I think it's good for them to, to learn this at, as a junior in high school or a senior in high school versus once they get out and then they spend another, you know, nine to 12 months in an EMT class only to find out it's just not for them. So um, I think, you know, our education manager, like I said, he's working really hard with getting these programs up and running in in our high schools so that, you know, these students have have a profession until maybe they can, you know, figure out what what their next steps are. I mean, I can say I didn't come out of high school um, and go into EMS. I was uh, probably about 25 when I did that. But um, I'm, you know, I'm glad I had the opportunity to explore other things and to learn other things before I found EMS and, and found my true calling. So um, hopefully with these, with these high school programs, we'll, we'll have some, some people who will want to stay. And then we'll have some people that maybe this is just a stepping stone and they're just going to stay a couple years. But I definitely think that we're getting it in, um, in the rural areas, in the inner city areas to where, um, the, the people that are going to be on the ambulances uh, are more in line with the communities that they serve. I love that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for also saying profession. So often we hear um, vocation, you know, when, and I've only been in EMS uh, a little over 15 years fire in EMS because my first career was in law enforcement, which brought some good experiences to overlap here. And at the same time, it brought a lot of trauma. Um, when we talk about high school students and, or a 25 year old, or in my case, early forties or whatever it was when I started uh, going through the EMS paramedic stuff and firefighting, um, being, uh, having a mindset, a, a, a mindset 
to be able to deal with things, to be able to ask for help, to be in a position in a culture that it's okay to say, I'm not okay. Um, what are some of the things that you, because I know it, 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 at the upper levels, you know, we have the 40,000 foot conversations and you do and will when you're the president, um, as the president elect now and on uh, the National EMS Management Association, but getting these things down to the provider level um, or a high school student that's considering this and we're meeting them where they are, because I, I think that's the biggest point. You're taking it to where we have to start uh, having minds uh, affected and, and hearts changed to see that this is a profession worthy of everyone, including the individuals that you're bringing it to. Does the state have any specific uh, education or do you kind of uh, have on your website opportunities for people that need help um, or within the education domain? Um, are there requirements on mental health within the curriculum? Uh, so we're starting to see that in some places or guest speakers are coming into programs in the state that I'm in, but there's not a specific mandate. Um, and I'm wondering what Louisiana might do that's different or, or the same. I'm just curious. So we don't, we don't have any mandates on that, but um, we do, we do monitor that at, especially at the high school level of, um, you know, making sure the kids understand what they may see, um, especially the EMT, the EMT students who have to do some ride time, you know, what they're going to see and um, make sure they're prepared. Uh, most of the high school um, programs, they have like a, a parent teacher night. So the parents are aware of what the students getting into and, you know, what they will be exposed to, especially, you know, during clinicals, what they, you know, possibly could see. And um, <clears throat> we, we want to make sure that, um, that the students also have the ability to uh, ask, ask for help they have the opportunity if, if it gets too much during their clinicals that they can um, call the parents. They, they can call a, a supervisor at the EMS agency where they are and, and get removed from the, from the ambulance if, if they need to. Um, we wanna make sure it's a safe environment for them. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, before we wrap up and, and we're coming up near your hard stop, and thank you for sharing that with me before we started. Um, are there any specific points, uh, something of a passion point, uh, a pain point, a heart point that you want to share with our listeners and, and those people that, that have been uh, tuning in or will be tuning in since this is being recorded um, that you'd like to share about, whether it's you, the state of Louisiana? Um, why should people come down there and, and work in EMS uh, or over there, depending on where they are geographically? Um, you and I have a lot of same friends and colleagues and y'all are competing uh whether at the state level or the uh, business level um for for good employees and, and employees that we can help mold and mentor and, and 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 shape into the people that uh are serving and caring for their communities well i just encourage you know of course i i like louisiana i live here and um i think uh this is one of the best places to get some good food. I can say that. Um, and, and I think I've worked in um, Louisiana my whole career. 
And, and I think it's a good place to work. I think um, you have, uh, you will get good experience here. Let me just say that. And so um, definitely, and we need uh, practitioners just like probably every state in the nation does right now. So definitely, you know, um, say that about Louisiana and, and, you know, encourage you to come here and we um, typically can get your uh, license processed in about 48 hours on um, the, that's the average time to uh, once your application is received and it's complete. But I would also like to talk about um, NAEMT. Um, there's, there's two programs that are going to be coming out. One's already started and one will start in the near future. And the one that uh, is already in progress is the Lighthouse Leadership um, Program that was started this year. Um, and so NAEMT has identified some mentors and they're taking applications for um, mentees. And um, it, it's, uh, it's a partnership between the mentor and the mentee and it's to um, teach leadership. And, you know, so many times you, in EMS, you are, you're a good clinician and, and you've been at an agency for a good amount of time. So you're next in line to become a, a supervisor. And so they give you um, the pen or the paper or the pen or the office and say, here you go, good luck. And they mm. give you no training. And so what we want to do, what NAEMT is trying to do is make sure that we have, um, you know, some leadership training and have, have a mentor who's, you know, an objective party, not necessarily somebody within the, your, the organization of the mentee, but somebody who's objective and can steer these, um, these new leaders in the right direction. And then um, coming up, hopefully, um, pretty soon, it's going to be our mental health resilience officer course. And um, I just participated in that in that beta test um, and it's an online course and it just gives some tools and some um, information and some guidance on how to recognize our coworkers when um, the stress has just become too much and how um, how to take care of them, how to listen when they're talking, um, how to offer help without, you know, um, without being a, a, you know, a trained uh, psychologist or psychiatrist, but, you know, just giving them the tools that they need. And um, so that, that should be coming out pretty soon. And, you know, I guess, you know, my final thought would be um, that, that, that we have to take care of ourselves. And I saw something, uh, I read something the, the other day that said, um, taking care of yourself is not selfish. And so there has to be time, um, for, for us to take care of ourselves. And, you know, um, I listened to Gordon Graham, who is a, you know, I guess a world definitely known in the United States if not the world as a, you know, a risk management, um, expert, but, you know, um, he said one time that if, if your employees need a break, give them a break. Um, if they, because somebody asked a question about, you know, I have an employee that likes to sleep on their lunch hour. Is that acceptable? It's their lunch hour. If they want to sleep and they're tired, let them sleep. A rested employee is a productive employee. You know, a happy employee is a, is an, a productive employee. So we have to take care of ourselves. And 
Um, I, I have no doubt that, you know, if I wasn't here tomorrow, the Bureau of VMS would still keep running. So um, I, I want to, you know, I take care of myself. I want my staff to take care of themselves. When they need family time, when they need self-time, I want them to be able to take it. So I, I would just like to encourage everyone that, you know, we all know when we're at that point where we need a break, we need um, to time for ourselves. And um, I would just like to encourage everyone to take that time when they need it. Well, Susan Bailey, the director of the state of Louisiana EMS division. Um, thank you. You've recently shared, uh, and this is from the European leadership, and it was one that resonated with me. And I'll share, uh, share it back to you and say thank you for sharing it. And then with our listeners, progress is impossible without change. And those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. And that was a Bernard, Bernard Shaw quote. And, and I love that. You talked about uh, individual accountability, personal accountability, responsibility, um, mental health, mission, passion, being a mother, uh, being a grandmother, being a wife, and how all of these things are equal, equally important and yet at times separate. But um, without having those conversations, they can be catastrophic uh, to those in relationship with us and those that we're in relationship with if we don't have open lines of communication. The same thing that you have and shared with us with your staff that resonates with them and then they take care of the, the customer, the end user and all of those seven uh, statutory required uh, things within your purview. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for your time. I'm appreciative appreciative of the personal. Thank you for sharing joy. Thank you for sharing love. Um, as As Asbel Montez, and I believe you know Asbel, um, really? uh, he, he's one of my, I'm one of his biggest fans and, and I love that man. Uh, yeah. Honest, real, truthful. Um, he, get, he gives a sermon every day and, and, you know, don't talk about it, be about it. That's Asbel. That sounds like that's who you are. That's the kind of person I want to be. So I appreciate your leadership through social media, um, which is why we connected and why I feel uh, a level of connection and engagement with you. I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for your, your volunteer time with the NAMT, the National EMS Management Association, and the people that you serve. This has been and is the EMS Improv Podcast, where we engage, where we are mindful, we share or tell our stories. I am Eric Chase. We are powered by GEMS. And until the next time, Peace and love be with each of you. Thank you.